I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I am um, Nandini Das. I'm professor of Renaissance English Literature at the University of Liverpool. I'm also the director of Tide which is a five-year um, ERC, or European Research Commission-funded project, um, which aims to investigate English perceptions of identity and belonging um, in the really the first great age of travel and human mobility in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, when we had huge swathes of people coming into England and also English people going abroad. Um, I'm delighted that the LRB Bookshop has allowed us to open up that discussion with all of you here, and thank you for coming. This evening, we are going to be talking about black lives in Renaissance Britain. So we shall be diving into the archives, um, into the very bowels of the Vatican and various <laughs> other archives uh, with our collected guests. We'll be asking how fiction can help to fill in those gaps that history perhaps can't fill. Um, and we'll also be collectively wondering whether it is, you know, whether having that imaginative license is a good idea. <laughs> How do we feel about that? Um, so please join me to give a warm welcome to our guests. Um, Catherine Fletcher is Associate Professor at Swansea University, whose acclaimed biography, The Black Prince of Florence, really brought out to light one of the surprisingly least, lesser-known stories of Renaissance Italy. David Olshoger's book and accompanying TV series, Black and British, um, brought out many of those stories which are closer to home in England. And, of course, we have Tide's inaugural visiting writer, Fred Degas, poet, playwright, and writer, and professor of creative writing at UCLA, whose many award-winning works have touched so wonderfully on questions of history and memory and those lost black voices sometimes. So welcome all. Thank you. So now I know that all three of you um, in answer to my rather last-minute request by email, have brought with you little snippets into past history for us, little examples of those 
voices from the past. Catherine, what have you got for us? Let's start with I have, that. I have got a letter that was apparently written in 1528 or 1529 by the mother of Alessandra de' Medici, the Black Prince um, of my book. Um, the mother who is variously described um, in the sources as either Moorish or, um, as I quote, half Negro, but whose details and even name are rather mysterious. And this document comes from um, a 19th century printed book, but the archive text is now lost. It has disappeared. So what I give you is a 19th century historian's rendering of what may be the voice of a black woman from the 1520s. Magnificent Lord Alessandro, dearest son, extremity leads me to write to you and forces me with this visit to beg you and as far as I can prevail upon you that for the love of God, you should not abandon me in the necessity in which I now find myself. I have two little children and I don't have the means to feed them. Even if I make economies, I still can't even relieve their hunger with bread once a month. My own hunger means nothing to me, less than nothing. If I should have to sell such little holdings as I have so as to sustain myself and not die of hunger, even if I could sell them, there is no grain to buy. On account of this, my son, were it not for this last hope remaining to me only in your magnificence, I should have nowhere to turn, no recourse. So I beseech you, for such love as you bear for God, not to forget me in such necessity and extremity. The bearer of this letter is my husband, who I recommend to you as I do myself and these two poor children. In Colavecchio, on the 12th of February, 1529, your dear mother, Simonetta. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> we'll come back to these stories in the course of our discussion, but. Moving on, David, what have you got for us? I've got a letter that was probably written a few years, maybe 10 years earlier, by a figure who I think is one of the most interesting figures in, in Tudor Britain, black or white, who is a trumpeter at the court of Henry VIII called John Blank. What happens is that John Blank discovers that one of the other trumpeters is being paid more than he is. <laughs> uh, all of these documents are secret, they go back and forth to the court. So what John Blank decides to do is something which under any circumstance you'd have to say was brave, which is he writes to Henry VIII demanding a pay rise. Mm. Now, <laughs> that takes some guts. <laughs> and in order to, to, to win his case, he obviously lays on the flattery and the, uh, the, uh, the charm uh, with the trowel. So he begins, I most humble wise beseech thee, your highness, your true and faithful servant, John Blank, one of your trumpeters, just to remind the king in case he's forgotten <laughs> or not noticed that one of his trumpeters is black. That whereas his, this is the other trumpeter's wage, now is, sorry, my wage is now not sufficient to maintain and keep me to your grace, to do your grace like service as the other trumpeters do. So he can't perform as well because he's not paid as, paid as much he's claiming. It may therefore please your highness in consideration of the true and faithful service which your servant doth daily unto your grace perform, and so during his lifetime intendeth to, to give him and grant to him the same position of trumpeter that Dominic, this is the other trumpeter, uh, had to enjoy. 
Now, the problem is that the other trumpet had died. So this is not only brave, it's slightly tasteless. <laughs> so, Dominic deceased late. So he's asking not just to be paid as much, but basically to be paid the money that was being paid <laughs> to Dominic. And he reminds the king that all he needs to do is to, is to uh, your gracious hand may be sufficient warrant to discharge to the, uh, to the treasurer your permission to pay, to pay me this additional sum. So John Blank is an important figure that we'll talk about later. He's the first black, black person in British history whose face we can look into, that we have a picture of. And his story is made up with a few, just a handful of documents, but this is the most human of all of them. This is, this is, under no circumstances in life and history, is asking for a pay rise an easy thing. But that's got to be one of the most challenging requests for uh, reimbursement that, uh, that anyone's ever attempted. Thank you. That's wonderful, David. Yeah. Um, pay rise, as pay rise requests go, that's a pretty good one. Even in the BBC. Even the BBC it's, it's easier than that. Yeah. Fred, what have you got for us? I found um, <clears throat> I've been working in Liverpool for the last 10 days or so, mm. um, looking at their archives, and I came across an exchange from 1647, London. A preacher transcribed this, and it's a conversation between his wife and a maid, because the Moor, she's called, who's the maid, has, is suffering from spiritual distress. So the, Mrs. S says, um, do you see a want of faith? The maid replies, I am filthy, wretched sinner. Mrs. S says, are you tempted against your life? The maid says, I am often tempted against my life. Mrs. S says, why? What causeth it? And then the maid says, sometimes this, because I am not as others are. I do not look so as others do. And I thought it was such an early emblem of a psychic despair. Before it was named, she was naming the unnameable. It, it struck me. I was sad, first of all, and I thought, delightful, I can write. <laughs> but I, it was just a key, an early, early emblem of that. And I thought it was wonderfully put by her, because if it's a transcription and true to her words, she was hitting at the nub of how writers enter history when it's a fragment, and it's a distressful fragment. How do we come in on their behalf and help them up? Thank you. That's a, a wonderfully kind of wide-ranging and provocative, I think, sneak peek at inner lives of people otherwise to whom we have lost access in a way. Um, Catherine, going back to you, um, you have, of course, spent ages delving into the archives at the Vatican and Florence. Can you help to set the scene for us a bit? What was it like to be of a different color in Renaissance Europe? There, there's a very different concept of race, isn't there? Yes, there's a, diff there's a different concept of race. And I think one of the, one of the problems for historians and indeed um, writers of fiction who want to write about the history of race or the history of black people in the 16th century and 17th century is that the concept of black did not exist in the same way in the minds of people at the time. So, for example, if um, I work mainly on Italy, Moro is the name and quite close to the, the idea of Moor in English, like Othello, the Moor of Venice. Um, 
is a word that's used. But it's sometimes used to describe somebody who's black. Sometimes it's used to describe somebody who is dark in complexion, but these days would be read as white, a white Italian. Um, so we don't, there's no census box ticking. There's no equal opportunities forms where you're asked to specify how you would classify yourself ethnically. And um, there's no idea um, that, for example, a person of mixed race would necessarily be labeled as black. That is a product of the late 19th, early 20th century, predominantly in America, where you have a one drop of black blood rule, and that makes you black. That doesn't exist. So we've got a society which has a really different set of mentalities around race. So trying to identify who in all records is black, as we might understand it today, is really quite challenging. We do have visual images. They're really important. I can tell you about visual images of black gondoliers, of a black archer in Florence, of um, a black shepherd, who if you look carefully, you might find in the National Gallery here in London. So there are, vi there are lots yeah. of visual um, pictures, but actually in the texts, pinning down how any individual defines their ethnicity or is labeled by others is actually quite tough. So how did that affect your work on Alessandro? Tell us a little bit about him. And... So in terms of Alessandro, it's, what we have got for Alessandro is we've got pictures of him. And the pictures of Alessandro um, point, I mean, what's, what's interesting, the ones that are painted as kind of propaganda pictures in his lifetime tend to emphasize his European heritage. He was somebody who was illegitimate son of a Medici prince and who became ruler of Florence. In his own lifetime, the portraits that are painted tend to emphasize the features that fit with that Medici dynastic ideal. The posthumous pictures lend themselves very much more to the view um, which is expressed in the sources that his mother was, well, different sources say different things. Some say she is um, a slave. Um, some say that she is Moorish. Some say that she is half Negro. Different sources say different things about her, but the balance, the weight of evidence points towards Alessandro being a man of African descent. But, you know, being able to pin that down, being able to say anything about his mother, even being able to say concretely what her name was, is impossible, really. There are three possible names I've found in the archives. There's Simonetto in that letter that I read. There's Anna, which is said in one of the histories. And then in another document, I found a woman called Senuera, which is quite mm. an interesting name. A possible could be a corruption of Portuguese or Spanish, Senora, and it was Portugal and Spain that yeah. were more involved in um, the, the um, enslavement and trade of Africans into Italy. So perhaps that might be somebody. But you know, you really, it's really, really difficult to be absolutely certain with facts. Um, which is quite challenging when you came up. I came up again the other, the, the other day on Twitter, I came up against a racist who wanted to have this argument, who eventually had to block on Twitter, started just saying all sorts of hideous stuff. But um, he, you know, this guy was like, well, it's all opinion, isn't it? There are no facts. And he said, well, actually on balance, there are quite a lot of facts out there. There are quite a lot of pictures that you can, you can definitely say that is an African person there here in Renaissance Europe. But yeah, when it gets the texts, the categories we have now don't exist in the same way then. 
That, that's really interesting. And of course, one of the facts is that image of Julia, Alessandro's mm. daughter, yes. which was blacked out of a portrait that was recently discovered. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. So, so Julia, who's an illegitimate daughter of Alessandro de' Medici, um, was painted um, after her father's death in a double portrait with her guardian, um, Maria Salviati. And the image of um, the child was painted over at some point in this painting's history and was only rediscovered um, when the Walters Museum in Baltimore did some restoration work. The painting had it x-rayed and discovered that there was actually um, what could be um, one of the earliest paintings of a child, uh, actual portraits of a named child of African descent to exist um, in European art. But of course, behind Alessandro, and you bring this out wonderfully in your, in your book, this, this world, there's all those unnamed presences like Alessandro's mother, the, the musicians, the servants, the, the yeah. household of yeah. Alessandro's half-brother, cousin yeah. and competitor, I mean, so, so when I, I mean, So I suppose when I first came across Alessandro, I was researching something completely different, which was the divorce of Henry VIII from Catherine of Aragon a famous piece of British history in which nobody has ever told that there are any black people implicated or involved whatsoever. I mean, in fact, there are, I mean, besides, besides John Blank, who we heard about around at the time, um, Catherine has a maid, um, Black Bay from Spain, um, and Alessandro is directly involved in this whole thing because the Pope who says no to Henry, no, you are not having the divorce, is the same Pope who is trying to install his neck into the Duchy of Florence with the support of Catherine of Aragon's relatives. So this kind of great event of English history, the divorce of Henry VIII, which we all hear about because of the break of Rome, actually sort of led me directly into this whole world of stories. And it's stories not only of Alessandro, but also I can tell you about a black page, I can tell you about her African drummers and dancers who are in Florence. Um, there are monks at the Church of Santo Stefano in Rome from, um, I think, the 12th century. There are numerous images of um, individuals. There's a black archer in, on, painted in the fresco of the Medici Chapel in Florence. So there are lots and lots of people who we really encounter only in kind of moments and fragments. There's one line in a, in a letter saying, you know, the cardinal is hoping to get some African dancers in for his next party. That'll be it, you know. But you tell, you know, you can piece all these things together. There's the there's the um, drummer who's nicknamed the Little Moor, who may or may not be African, but we know that there were African yeah. drummers around at the time. Who is hired by the Medici court, is given um, a hat, a velvet hat for his work, and then goes on to turn up in the court records of Florence because he gets into a fight in a tavern. He stabs somebody, and then he gets arrested, and then he's done for murder. <laughs> It's like a tiny little vignette. You know, yeah. you sum it up in a couple of sentences. But there you have a possible story about an individual. But of course, because of the uncertainty around all the terminology, it's, it's hard to pin down. But once you start looking and noticing and thinking um, about this subject, there is loads and loads out there to find. And David, you've of course done that for England when you started writing Black and British. How did you find the experience of writing that earlier history? Obviously, there's a lot of work that's done on 18th century and 
slavery and all of the history that followed. What about that earlier period? Um, well, I think the problem about writing that, that, that earlier period is that we carry with us the baggage from those later periods. So the presumption, because people these days are much more aware of Britain's role in, in the Atlantic slave trade, is that black people in the records in the 16th and the 15th century must somehow be connected with slavery. They must have got here through mechanisms connected with slavery. Now, that is the case probably for some of them, but it's not the case by means for all of them. And also, what we mean by slavery in that earlier period is not what we mean by slavery in the plantations of the New World in, in later periods. So trying to unlearn those presumptions and see these people as individuals that we find in the records is one of the sort of difficulties. But I think the other challenge, and so the other thing that underpins all of this, is that Africa is part of the experience of Renaissance Europeans. Africa, not only do we see Africans through the prism of the Atlantic slave trade, we tend to see Africa through the prism of 19th century yeah. colonialism. Africa's history in relation to Europe is profoundly different to Africa's history, to Europe's history, for example, with the New World. Africa was never unknown. Africa was never discovered. It was never a New World. Africa's in the Bible. Africa was a Roman, <coughs> parts of Africa were Roman provinces. So Europeans always knew that Africa was there. Europeans who could read always knew that Africans were described in the Bible in certain ways of having, and having certain complexions, looking in certain ways, living in certain places. And then we have travel accounts, which is yeah. Mandini's work, Mandeville, Hackworth's travel, that show that Europeans are aware of not just of Africans, but where they come from, the worlds they might, they, they might be uh, uh, messengers from. So Africans arrive with different baggage. They are exotic, they are exciting, but in different ways to the ways that they are for the 19th century. And of course, these, these 19th century, 18th century presumptions of what race means, the idea that human physical difference carries with it uh, signals about the content of somebody's heart or the capacity of their brain, that isn't there. Now, this isn't to say that everyone in the Renaissance is lovely. Uh, rather like Twitter, <laughs> some quite horrible people, quite a lot of stabbings when they saw Tintle. Not surprising if like, I was involved in them because they're almost ubiquitous. We read the life of Caravaggio, you can barely go a week ever that stabbing So, these trying to see this period as not to the prisons of later centuries is really important, but also it's an amazing opportunity because there is, I work in television, there is no period that obsesses people who watch television programs and history books like Tudor period in Britain. To be able to point out that anybody who went to the coronation of Henry VIII or the funeral of his father or the Westminster tournament held to celebrate the birth of Henry and Catherine's first child, they will have seen black people like John Blank in the court. You cannot be involved in the court of the Tudors as in the court of most of the European power players without encountering black people. They are at the very center of power politics in the 16th century. That's such a different image to the image of the Tudors I was brought I was, uh, that reminds me, although th there is a rising awareness within media about that lack, isn't there? I was quite pleased that in the most recent, and here I admit to my TV viewing habits, um, the most recent episode of Doctor Who, um, the doctor's companion looked around her in 19th century Britain and said, bit more black than they show in the movies. <laughs> um, and it's, it's as true, I think, of Tudor England. 
um, in some ways, um, as it is. I, I'd like to bring Fred into the discussion here, because you've sat in on our research mm. with Tide, and you've looked at a lot of the material yourself, Fred. What's your impression of black presence in 16th and 17th century England in this period? Yeah, and we're going to come to a quote which you all have, which is a bit later from Phyllis Wheatley. But as a writer, you're always asking, where, where is the poetry in the moment? in the fragments and in the missing bits. And what's, al what's always clearly absent is an interiority mm. for the people being talked about. Mm. So you'll see a sliver. And then as, as a writer, your sensibility wants to flesh them out with some sort of account of their body and spirit and soul. It's a, it's a, it's a radical call, not just to have, give them a voice, but to place them biographically. Mm. I say this because Toni Morrison has a wonderful essay called The Sight of Memory. And in that essay, she talks about this idea of how writers enter history. But I felt it was a, a, a call to, to, to the poetry of the moment when you have a fragment. And it seems one-dimensional, but it gives you a way into that history because what's absent is for you to occupy that. It's partly that, and then it's partly this idea of, um, again, Toni Morrison in Playing in the Dark, where she talks about the authenticating presence of a dark body that will highlight a privilege white body. Now this is slightly later again, but in order to understand the privilege of the people around the table, a black person will bring the tray in and serve the white person. The black person won't be talked about very much in the literature because it's all about a, a construction of whiteness, but we understand their privilege immediately when we see the person bringing the tray in and serving them. So by default and by um, a kind of neglect, blacks are always present. And what um, writers who want to change the emphasis try to do, and we tilt the field, which is tilted unfavorably, is you try to write the soul and spirit of that absent body to try and write the imbalance. And those accounts are existential, but they're also to do with how you talk back to history from a present to a distant past, and what that bridge might be if you imagine something, an imaginary reaching back. But the pivot isn't just simply closing a divide empathetically or with a narrative. I think it's also writing thresholds. A lot of writers are interested in, in, in the stance of a threshold. But if you're poised between two places, say the Caribbean and Britain, you know both, you've arrived, you've been told to go away in both, <laughs> to varying degrees. <laughs> you've claimed both. Um, but the, the stuff in between is actually quite fertile for your imagination. It could drive you mad. but. In between that pivot is a lot of interesting chances to look backwards in history and then look forwards into a kind of Afrofuturism, as it were, as you look at the present. So I do think history, which is seen as a dead, dead matter, black lives matter, as it were, in, in that space. Um, going back to one of the things that Fred said about this challenge of occupying that space, I mean, that's something that histori as historians, Catherine, and David, you also struggle with, I suppose. And texts aren't the only things that can help us to do that. Um, Catherine, I know you've talked a lot about portraits and objects. David, there's that other side of the flow of objects that mm. gives, a, gives us an insight into that well, relationship as well, isn't it? There's a lot of really interesting work going on about, well, again, you have to step aside from your presumptions. Because we see colonial relationships between Africa and Europe as the norm, we imagine that in the 16th century when it began, that Europeans turned up 
and were colonized. Well, they turned up on a caravel, a small sailing ship, which was about the most dangerous, sickly place to be in the 16th century. They turn up with a hold not full of weapons, but full of trading goods, because they're there as traders. They come to Africa in order to get goods to bring back and make themselves wealthy, and they take goods to Africa that Africans want to buy. So we have this interchange, as well as of people, of goods. And many of the people that we know are part of this transition are a byproduct of the movement of goods. This isn't about moving people, it's about, well, there is slavery, but it isn't primarily about moving people, it's about moving goods and making money through the process. Now, as much as there were European craftsmen who are producing materials for African markets, there's also African craftsmen, and we know that they're in Benin in Nigeria, they're in Congo, they're in Sierra, now Sierra Leone, who are producing artifacts, some of which still exist for European customers. And because this is an interchange in which there are middlemen and people are traveling, they get good at it. They work out what people want, what sells and what doesn't sell. So just up there in the, in the British Museum is an ivory horn produced in the 16th century in Benin, in which African craftsmen, who never left Africa probably, have carved into the ivory the crest of the house of Aviz, the Portuguese royal family. There's a salt cellar in which the figures are clearly European with beards. Because these guys have been sent pictures. This will sell in Lisbon next week. Stop doing your African stuff. This is what <laughs> But at the same time, African stuff does sell because it's exotic and exciting. So there is a portrait, uh, which is a, an adoration of Christ in a museum in Lisbon, in which the mat is from the Congo. And it looks like it was bought in a kind of hippie shop in Bath last week. It's so kind of senior. You think there should be a sort of bomb there as well. It's so 20th century. It looks like they're students. But we're familiar with it because that sort of stuff became popular again in the 60s with people doing the hippie trail. But it's there in a 16th century religious uh, Portuguese portrait. And it's there as a representation of this movement of goods and products and the fact that craftsmen always whether they're black or white, European or African, they will always adjust what they're doing to markets and what people want. The African craftsmen, we know we don't know where they are, we don't know their names, but their, their handiwork, their signature, as it were, is just around the corner from us in the British Museum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And that's a very different way of looking at the relationships, isn't it? We're, we're used to, in some ways, of looking at a very binary structure of relationship that is 
predicated on our later historical sense of what happens. But in this particular period, from what you're describing, there's a different kind of negotiation going on where the craftsmen have a degree of control over the way they manipulate these European mm. desires yeah. or symbols. Yeah, they're, they're, well. they're playing to what their works, works in a the market. They're becoming international craftsmen who can reversion their products for different markets. But they're also becoming part of what is defines West Africa and other parts of Africa, which is they're part of an Atlantic world. They are people who are globally minded. They are not, as the Victorians saw them, sort of these people from these kind of in, inner forest kingdoms who've never been anywhere. They're learning Portuguese. Many of the Congolese are, are Catholic. Their missionaries are with them. Um, they are, one of, the, one of the, the, the tropes about thinking about Africans is authenticness. Who's authentic? Are Africans, are you being authentic or are you mm. being Western as well? There are people on the coast of West Africa who have been in contact with this Atlantic world for five centuries. Yeah. Their authenticity is about being these coastal, Atlanticist, outward-looking, trading people. That is their authentic yeah. identity. And this myth of authenticity that's somewhere in the heart of Africa, probably beside dinosaurs in a lost rally, <laughs> are real authentic Africans. That's a 19th century idea. Yeah. That, that's really interesting because as researchers, as you know, Fred, we've been struggling with that idea of betweenness and authenticity um, in our period. But as a writer, I mean, you write so wonderfully and humanely, I think, about history and memory and identity, right from uh, your first kind of Whitbread, Whitbread first award-winning book, The Longest Memory, on to um, the, the Children of Paradise. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, you constantly play with fragments of memory and letters and news accounts. How do you encounter history? How do you handle history when you're writing about these? With, with fear. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because the, the body count is alarming. Mm. You know, people are thrown away and they're people. Yeah. They're pieces because they're property, but you know they're people, so it, it hurts to count. In, in, um, in, the, in, the, in the novel about the zone, which I wrote in, in the late 90s, mid 90s, it was horrible that there were 133 people thrown overboard. That's the feeding the ghosts. Feeding the ghosts. Yeah. And there were strokes in the captain's log for these people. Mm. And you knew that each one, each stroke of his pen was actually a, a full biography. So history, the encounter with history is not clinical with a piece in a, in a library with gloves. It can be, depending on what book pages you're turning. It's actually painful to, to, to do that. And, um, the other thing I, I got from it too is, is someone like, you know, if you look at popular songs, um, let's say Bob Marley, Uprising, very interesting album. We've got a track there called Buffalo Soldier, in which he says, which is interesting because, you know, people think Haile Selassie, 20th century philosophy, but even with the Rastafarians, there's a search going back for, to earlier and earlier times for emblems of belonging. And so he goes to the American West picks mm. on soldiers who go out to so-called pacify Indians and are sent away from the fort for a long time. And for him, his track, because they were called Buffalo Soldiers by the Indians, Native Americans who saw them, he's, he said his, his line is Buffalo Soldier, dreadlock, Dreadlocks Rasta. And I took that, that e but even Marley was thinking, hang on, if I go back far enough, I can actually get back to you know, Hadrian's Wall and find Rastas right there. And I feel that's, that quest with history and belonging is not just about the past, it's about the present, mm. where you feel a vacuum in your presence, and you've got to populate that vacuum, get rid of it, by having a historical awareness. And then, yeah. with that 
armed with that, you can then look ahead and do your Afrofuturistic thing, where, where you know Star Trek can be full of black people on the ship, <laughs> and you can go forward at you know warp factor speed and occupy the future. So I do think looking back where there's so many absences, so many throwing aways, a deracinated landscape, as they call it, full of hurt. You've got to take a kid into a museum and be able to walk a child in and say, well, look, it isn't just a slave ship. It's Adrian's Wall. Before that, it's, you know, you've got to be able to walk a child there and show them that history isn't all about, you know, being torn apart and thrown away. And so I feel that search for early emblems is looking for belonging to a landscape creatively, not just in terms of pain and trauma. And you do that in terms of history in your book when you start with the ivory bangle lady mm. and the beachy head lady, essentially, yeah. woman. Um, the two kind of markers, uh, uh, essentially, uh, archaeological uh, markers. Uh, yeah. we, uh, I mean, the, the beachy head ladies, second or third century uh, Roman Britain. We know that she was uh, probably, we know that she was born or brought, or brought to Britain as a very young child because of, I'm now wandering into science, so forgive my ignorance, uh, isotope, radioactive isotope testing, which can tell from the constituent minerals in people's teeth, the diet that they had in their very, very early first years of life. So we know that she is of African descent, and we know that she was brought up or born in Britain. So she is someone who knew, if she wasn't born here, she didn't know any other country. If she was born here, then she's a black Briton in the sort of most basic sense that she was born here. And... She has just been unveiled to us by, uh, by new techniques in archaeology. So she was discovered in the 19th century. In 2012, the uh, Eastbourne uh, Archaeology Service were just going through these Roman remains because there were lots of Romans. It was a long period. There's lots of boxes of remains. And hers was one of the ones they decided to have isotope testing. Then they did cranial analysis, and the results were not what they expected the results are wonderful. She is the first black Briton that we know of. And I thought that was, a, that was wonderful when I, when I discovered it. Um, but when I saw her remains, I'm talking about this sort of the impact of the thing. When the thing is the, the remains of somebody who is the earliest person who's kind of like me that we know of, that's, that's emotional. And I think if you are in the archives or you're in the museums with this stuff, and it doesn't have an emotional impact, if you look at the Zong documents and you don't feel some sort of visceral reaction, then you're probably in the wrong business. Yeah. I remember um, in a very early interview, I think, um, about feeding the ghosts, um, Fred, you made a remark, and I made a confession to Fred about this before the interview, that um, I was looking through my past notes on my computer and I realized that this was the point where I had first become aware of his writing. There was an interview where you talked about how history is dead, but from there are moments in history where you want to stop history and let fiction come out, f let fiction break out of it. And my younger self had made a note, um, had this little quote from the interview, and the note was this, full stop, read Fred Degas. <laughs> um, so, what do you think? I mean, going back to that um, that kind of observation, what do you think fiction can bring out of history? Well, uh, t tell your audience that again about reading Fred Degas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it brings out the poetry in history. I, I, you know, I'm a po I began as a poet, and I, I do think there's something about. Um, the deep time of poetry, the lyric time of poetry. 
And since I'm among researchers and historians, I do want to say a little bit about, about the lyric. The idea of linear time, of course, is full of fractures. And as you, you walk forwards and backwards in it, you try to make a story of it. So you storyfy yourself, and you give shape to your uncurated soul in some kind of order. With deep time and lyric time, there's a sense of going downwards into the history with all those objects floating around, not in a particular order, but with an emotional intelligence attached to them. You feel your way into history. You have a chant, chant down Babylon, as it were. It could be anything. But there is a lyric sense of time in poetry that is downward and deep. And I'm interested in how that, the two are brought to bear. The lyric one that goes across, down the alphabet from A to Z, the lyric one that seems to be plumbing and doing what Heaney calls soundings. You kind of throw the stone out, the ripples go out, something goes down. That deep time, I think, is where you make connections with broken histories, fractured histories, incomplete family trees where things are missing um, and presumed gone, where somebody's a stroke in the captain's ledger, but you know they have a full biography and you've got to help them come back and, and, and feel your way into that likely trajectory. So that, and that remains a poetic interest. It remains with some meditation, thinking, some research. You can flesh it out, put the bodies together, find a likely story. Well, make shit up, as they say. <laughs> Excuse me. But, but, in a, but in a way that's constructive. So. <laughs> And sometimes that has very practical kind of results, isn't it, in terms of fiction triggering real awareness and real change. We were talking about the black history plaques. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm into public history. I'm, into, uh, I'm not an academic. I've, I've always been involved in broadcasting and journalism as well as history. And it's about sort of making these stories better known because they're just amazing, incredible stories. So there's no area of history I know that just cries out for the work of people like Fred and, and these, these black histories because they're all, they're all fragmented. They're all so tantalizing that you're just desperate to know more. They said they're the second act in American, in American life. Well, most of these histories, there aren't second acts. Most of these, these black figures, and this is right up to the 19th century, we get to know them with immense vivid colors and then there's nothing. Then the letters go, the, the trail goes. I mean, somebody like Mary Seacott, we know a lot about in that period in the 1850s. We know almost nothing about her later life. It was um, my friend Helen Rappaport discovered the first proper portrait of her by accident. It was on the back of another portrait. These people, even the ones we think we know well, they, the, the, the trail goes cold over and over again. And it is just too tempting to not want and not be pleased there are people like Fred who have the, the uh, let's be honest, the skills that I haven't got to, to try to flesh out and to reimagine and to re, repopulate those lives with details and make more, make more of them. But in a practical sense, it's, it's the, I think it's probably the best way of bringing people to care about these histories. An example that we were discussing earlier is um, in the last series I, I, I worked on, we put up 20 heritage plaques, black history plaques. We put them up in the Caribbean, in Africa, and in Britain. Um, and we've, we've done it. We've run out of money. We can't do any more. Well, uh, a, a historian from Warwick University is going to do another one. He's going to do one to Ira Aldridge, the 19th century black actor who came to Britain, performed a fellow, and was vilified for playing a black Shakespearean figure in the city where Shakespeare wrote. Um, now, I'd love to think it was because I wrote a book and made a TV series, but that's happening. But it's not. It's happening because Ira's becoming a star. 
because Lalita Chakrabarti and Adrian Lester produced the play Red Velvet, imagining his life. The power of a playwright to take Ira and bring him out of the shadows and into the light of public history is, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So the idea that I think you have, if you study academic history, that you've got to be careful with people like Fred, because they're, they're <laughs> going to corrupt our purity as people in the that's I think that's falling apart. We need that imaginative voice, and we need to use all of the methods, all of the writing styles, all of the creative arts to bring this history to life and to more people. And that's also quite interesting because, you know, in, in the case of Ira Aldrich, as you said, Red Velvet as a play, and Adrian Lester's investment in yeah. it, essentially, as an actor, yeah. was, was a key point. And we were talking about this um, earlier, Catherine, about the lack of media attention. Yeah, and in fact, it, it? the fact that in historical drama on British TV is still very, very rough. I mean, very much, you kind of get, the, get a very occasional series, very, you know, probably a little bit of attention to diversity. But also, I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of problem that at the moment, the history is still not well enough known that if directors do choose to cast a black actor in a historical drama, then audiences are, well, 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 that's not very authentic. Is it because they and and then you get these kind of you're only doing it to be politically correct, you know this is terrible, you know there's this political correctness this has trumped historical authenticity and you have this and and so I I think that I mean I think the picture is great but I also think we need to win the argument with people about you know these are the historical facts it is not wrong to have a drama that is set in 17th century London and have people of colour in that world it's it's perfectly historically legitimate, I mean, and quite bis apart from any arguments, I mean, which I'm all in favour of colourblind casting of historical drama. I mean, I don't check care if the Bennett sisters <laughs> are whatever ethnicity, perfectly well cast Jane Austen like that. So there's no reason why not we accept it on the stage, we should accept it on TV too. That's a slightly different argument. But on the, um, yeah, but, but I, so I think that as well as fiction, it's important to try and communicate the, the, the facts of the past as we have them as well because you know otherwise we will continue we'll continue to be having this argument of sort of argument in the culture wars about you know oh, right on broadcasters doing this stuff just you know for their own political ends and, and there's a lot more to it than that. I think this is a moment good moment to open up the discussion to the audience here. And thanks very much it was all super interesting. I regularly get into significant arguments with my parents about colonialism through BBC documentaries, who I feel <laughs> are... I'm doing that job. Causing arguments in that. <laughs> well, no, I've not, not seen yours. <laughs> um, um, and my question is, do you feel like it's a challenge to ask people to move beyond a kind of colonial view of European and African relations when we haven't, in this country, seemingly accepted that we have a colonial view of European and African relations and how do you articulate that to seemingly a nation of people that are ignoring it? So can you have reconciliation before you've done the truth bit first? So, yeah. I, well, this was probably slightly off, off, off topic and it's very much a 19th century story but I think we are in a moment where we have to think about how we think about the empire and 
I think it's actively, actively becoming dangerous at our level of imperial nostalgia and lack of knowledge. And I, I wrote a piece in The Guardian about a year ago saying it, it, it's not that it would be nice of us to have a more honest relationship with our colonial past. It's that the Chinese and the Indians are going to make us. It's the power shift in the world is so enormous to the East that it's, it's not that uh, it would be sweet of us if we'd be honest about it. Our trading partners, the biggest in, 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 um, economies in the world, they haven't forgotten. And this idea that mm -hmm. it's our choice to remember or forget is a kind of solipsistic uh, argument. They've never forgotten. Most people in Britain have never heard that Britain destroyed the Summer Palace in Beijing. The Chinese have produced one of the biggest museums in the world to that event in the, 18, in the 1850s. And every officer in the Chinese, the People's Army, goes there as part of their training. It's, it's not just that we've got to remember. We've got to do it before they remind us. And I, I worry that we're not making the right progress. So, and I guess Africa's there as well. Africa sadly hasn't got the economic might to uh, make the request for remembering more urgent. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you're saying. Uh, it's given a really different light to uh, a lot of things I've been thinking about too. But you talked a lot about um, the presences, you know what I mean, and how these presences were not what we expected and how these are colored by a 19th century understanding of history. So could you maybe talk a little bit, um, any, any of you in fact, um, about the nature of difference then and the nature of perhaps racism and maybe how it was differently inflected then um, and how the experiences of people might have been somewhat different. I really loved your, your quotation about um, being um, sort of different to others. Um, so could you talk about maybe what you think the experiences might have been like? Catherine, do you want to take that first? I mean, I think that obviously, I mean, you, you, do, you, can, you can see quite clearly in the 16th century some um, European intellectuals writing about race in, t in the kind of terms that prefigure what will happen later on. What I think, and I, and I think if you look at, for example, I was struck by what Fred was saying about the, the case of the... The, the black person who is serving in a dinner scene, because that is a very common motif in the art mm. of 16th century Italy. So you will have this very glamorous looking white woman and a black page stood next to her precisely in order to create this sort of aesthetic effect of contrast. So I have to say, you know, if I try to like imagine what that page is experiencing, it is probably not necessarily a very pleasant um, experience to have, I mean, they might, you might be kind of quite spoiled and treated like, you know, a, a sort of, you know, little cute kid. You might also be quite horribly exploited in that scenario. And so, you know, you can imagine that. But you could also imagine that, um, say, somebody in the context of, of slavery in Renaissance Italy, where it was much more common than in the later plantation systems for people to be enslaved for a while and then to be freed, um, that you might be freed farm some land, have a family, um, be kind of just really merged into part, part of the local population, attend church, be baptized, go through all the same kind of rituals. And actually, because there isn't a very sharp theory of race in that period around in the same way, not necessarily be perceived or indeed perceive yourself as very different in the longer term. So I think, you know, we're talking about real multiplicity of different possible experiences, but stuff that you know really needs. A, you know, the only way I can I can in any way answer your question is by trying to imagine, and I haven't got historical sources that are telling me the. 
the answers to this. Ironically, I would have better historical sources if you asked me about Jewish people or about queer people for this period because they were both explicitly legally persecuted. And so we have a bunch of trial records where they talk about their yeah. lives. Ironically, because black people, it wasn't illegal to be black, <laughs> you know, it was illegal in certain circumstances to be Jewish and doing particular stuff, or certainly to be um, having um, same-sex um, affairs, you know, you get records, you get police records for certain minorities in Renaissance Europe, and actually black people is not one of them, um, which is quite kind of count counterintuitive in a way, but it makes it all the harder to try and pin down people, details of lives and experiences because you don't get that first-person testimony even via the police interrogator taking notes. That reminds me of um, a particular court record that we kind of looked at in terms of our project um, where a particular ship's captain um, had been taken to court and the witness against him was black. The ship's captain then argues that this particular person should not be allowed to act as a witness, which makes him a recognized subject. But the reason was not because he was black. The reason was because he was originally of a pagan faith. So religion yeah. is the differential factor there rather than color. I think we've just got time for one more question. Thank you very much. It's just been a really interesting talk. Um, when you were all talk speaking, I was struck by how much we all related to the things you said, especially when you mentioned that the trumpeter was asking for a pay rise. Everybody in the room laughed because they recognised this scenario. And also, Fred, when you were talking about um, the pain, actually, of disappearance, of absence, so that these lives matter, if you like. While I was listening, I was struck by the idea that actually that's something that continues. That legacy of disappearance is very much with us. So when you're talking about these histories, they seem very present. And the idea that actually we are disappearing, we think that we're inscribed on the archives, but I don't think we are. And I wondered whether how you felt that the work that you're doing transforms us in the present if, if you can, if you have a way of, you know, this idea that issues of race were different, I'd like to know how this knowledge can transform our ideas of authentic Britishness as well as, you know, you were talking about authentic, you know, they're not being an authentic African subject, so. Um, I mean, you know, I am interested in um, the distinction that's being made between the real poetry of the world that's going on, and then poetry that seemed to be about identity. Somehow, poetry about identity is lesser than some kind of real poetry that appears to be about the spirit. And this may sound like nominal determinism, but if you tell someone continuously that the only way they can think is through blackness, that's a negative reinforcer or a neg negative moniker, then in order to get to the spirit, they've got to chant their way through that negativity to reach the humanity that they clearly dream about every day. So what has been separated into two distinct things, poetry and identity, actually, in terms of parading and performing poets' interiority for, on behalf of others, is the two, a coalition of the two. So my argument against where all the editors are white in a country where it's been blanketed with a sort of whiteness that calls and poetry as a spiritual undertaking and identity as a separate different political thing that's not quite poetry, not quite, is that they're misunderstanding 
where the poetics is located. They've made a fake demarcation between the two. When you chant to get to the negative stuff, of course you dream and you're human if you're black in the West. Of course you fall in love and fall in love first before you think, okay, love the skin too. Or whatever you might think. Of course when you take your kid to a museum, you want the child to have a museum experience. But to understand how safe it is, they better know where they are at 11 p.m., at 2 p.m. in this part of the country and so forth. So I do think my quarrel about it is how we, how we can get editors who are in positions of power to really look at the poetry that's being written by other groups and not write it off, but see it as a performance of interiority and singing to the soul with the same fluted equivalence of the so-called universality that they bequeath to poetry that appears to be raceless. So it's not a race argument, actually. It's a human argument being made in that space. But I do think it's one that has to be said again and again in different kinds of accents. I could give you an American accent if you wanted. <laughs> and it's also an argument about geography as well. I mean, you know, I grew up in the UK. I had 10 years in the Caribbean in Guyana. I've been in, in the States for 20 years. A third landscape where you hear the same things being said. A kind of globalization of the spirit in terms of bodies within across the globe. A sort of trans-performative thing that you're understanding with transsexuals and trans bodies right now that's really complicated, resembles the 80s, resembles the 90s, arguments coming back again, the same 784 equivalent. For example, when I was young, in, in the, when I was young, back in the old days, 784 was a theater company, which you might know about. And we all presume seeing 784 doing their plays that logically at some point, that statistic will change. It won't be 7% with 84% of the wealth, because the theater will unleash the coffers and there'll be a kind of breakout of democracy in terms of wealth. Well, we knew it wouldn't happen, but we thought so over the pints after the plays. <laughs> now, to think now on both sides of the Atlantic that that statistic is worse is actually really quite scary. It makes reco historical recovery really urgent. And, you know, not just a casual recovery, but actually a political gesture to reach back and have the time to do that and then come forward for the kids now to see that and build those bridges. So I do think it's existential, political, spiritual, and ultimately will make you a better person if you do it. <laughs> well, that's probably a good place to stop. Um, that's all we've got time for. Please join us in thanking Catherine Fletcher, Fred Dabar, and David Oliver. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 